Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you part two from chapter five of Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II by Darlene Dibbler-Rose. Chapter five, part two. Next to her were the three Chinese families from Makassar. All of them had been connected with the Chinese embassy Mrs. Wang to Fung was older and worked in the hospital kitchen. Her fine 16-year-old son lived in the house with Dr. Jaffrey. Both Mrs. Li Tu Hawaii and Mrs. Yu Pao Hin asked to work with the garden crew. It was an interesting picture to see Mrs. Li and Mrs. Yu large hose over their shoulders leaving for the fields each morning, followed by their assorted cluster of five little girls, all wearing sun hats like their mothers. The Lees had been vibrant members of our Chinese church in Makassar. Next came three Armenian families. The husbands of all three households had been in the import-export business in Makassar and were now incarcerated in the civilian men's camp in Pari Pari, Sira, Paul, with her son, Freddie, and daughter Dolly, had the block of beds next to Mrs. Wang. While in Molino, Dolly became very ill, and the doctor was sent for. His test proved that her illness was indeed meningitis, as he had suspected. She became paralyzed from the waist down, and even though she recovered from the infection, she went into deep depression. It was not difficult to understand how traumatic it must have been for a pretty young girl like Dolly to find herself paralyzed and see her legs not developing as they should. I found instant report for, with Dolly and tried to see her often. A woman in the next barracks had also had meningitis. However, she had learned to walk again with the use of canes. Because their experiences had been similar, she took a vital interest in Dolly, suggested exercises, and encouraged her to believe that she too would recover the use of her legs. The two of them worked together as much as possible, with everyone in the barracks leaning, le lending encouragement. Dolly progressed to the point where she could walk holding onto the ladders of the top sleeping racks. Swinging, first one leg, then the other, Dolly moved up and down the length of the barracks. With this remarkable improvement, her depression lifted. A wounded spirit and a broken body began to mend. Freddie, Dolly's junior, by two years, was very good for her. He never treated her like an invalid. Their occasional disagreements were good therapy. Freddie was tall like their mother, Sira. When we needed another woman for the garden crew, Sira volunteered. She had suffered much during her daughter's illness, which would account for her pensive, often sad expression. She was not moody, for the moment she was spoken to, her face lit up and she responded. She must have been comforted often by Freddy in her concern for Dolly. There was a strong bond between them. 
Another family, also named Paul, occupied the next two beds. Lena and her daughter, Bonnie, Lena's son, Robbie, was housed with the men. For whatever reason, the mother-daughter relationship seemed to have suffered. They needed each other very greatly, but somehow they appeared to have lost the ability to understand and communicate with one another. It was one of the unfortunate consequences of the splitting up of families during the war made them more regrettable because both Lena and Vani were basically nice people. Initially, Lena had been a large woman, but with the passage of time, there was less and less of her. She, like Sira, worked with the garden crew. Next came Lucy Galstein, daughter Joyce and son Irby. Every one of them had lovely, wavy brown hair. The beautiful hair seemed to be characteristic of the Armenians. Lucy was tall and Joyce was going to be, while Irby was short, a fact that troubled him not a little. Lucy's mother, Oma Galston, uh, had the bed next to her. Oma knit white socks for the officers, and Lucy belonged to the garden crew. There was, there were frequent distributions between the two women, revolving around how to raise Normie Galston, the fifth member of the family. He was Oma's grandson and Lucy's nephew. Whatever their recipe, I think the ingredients were correct, for with a full measure of Oma and several dashes of Lucy, Normie turned out to be a tall, garrulous, delightful, slightly bow-legged imp. Uh, Normie and Irby kept things interesting. When Normie ran out of ideas, Irby pulled a few out of his bag of tricks. Then we had another fine Eurasian family of five by the name of De Kizer. Uh, there were two boys and two girls. Jan was the oldest. He was tall and quite thin. Carolina was fairly stocky, built very much like her mother. Both she and the younger sister had long brown hair that was always nearly braided and tied with ribbons. Carolina, who was about seventeen, chose to work at the piggery with others of her age group. Bertie, the young son, younger son, always had a grin and a good word for everyone. He was cooperative and helpful to his family. Mrs. DeKeyser uh, was on the staff at the central kitchen. She was quiet, very proud of her family, and an altogether fine person. The next section of racks, racks would, was occupied by Oma de Vries, a Eurasian woman married to a Dutch man. Her lovely daughter, Lini Rapasa, was about 18 years old. Lini was married with a little daughter, Iris. Her second child, Joyce, arrived soon after Lini came to Campali. It was this young woman who volunteered to nurse the other infant in our barracks. We tried as much as possible to provide her with extra food because of the additional responsibility she had undertaken. Oma suffered from diabetes and appeared to be morose, probably due to her physical unwellness. 
She was a Christian woman and very faithful in her attendance at devotions. Mrs. Trobach had the fourth bed in this section. She was a devout Christian, helped Oma care for Iris, and like Oma worked in the hospital kitchen. On down the row was Ellie Kusreva, uh, a Czechoslovakian girl who, or with a effervescent personality, uh, com complimented by a beautiful singing voice. She was a cheerful, positive person and much appreciated by the patients in the hospital where she worked. As I came to know Ellie better, I realized that beneath this happy exterior was a person with a deep hurt. Ellie was adept at appearing carefree and lively, but beneath the surface I had seen a very grieved spirit. She was a devout Roman Catholic, and we had many opportunities to talk together about God. Ellie shared with me the source of the hurt and allowed me to pray for her. Beneath Ellie was a German girl named Katie Eckstein, for whom I f felt an immediate affinity. We were about the same age. She had come from Germany to live with her sister, who was married to a Dutch patrol officer. Katie and Ellie became close friends. I felt joy to be available whenever either of them needed to unburden themselves to someone. In a measure, God enabled me to bring help and comfort to them on a spiritual level. Not only was Katie physically beautiful, but she had inward charm and grace. She was always a willing helper and a clever, creative seamstress. So naturally, she was assigned to the sewing room, making uniforms for the Japanese and work clothes for us women. The section next to Katie and Ellie was occupied by Mrs. Van der Harst and her four daughters. Shortly before the Japanese invasion, the Van der Harst's oldest daughter, Linichi, suffered a mental collapse. The doctors could find no reason for this sudden uh, personality change. Seemingly overnight, a beautiful, cheerful, outgoing girl became depressed and withdrawn except for occasional unpredictable fits of temper. Linichi had grown obese and had become exceedingly strong. The whole family was under a pow of disbelief that this had happened to their beloved Linichi. The mother showed me a picture of Linichi before the collapse. She had truly been a lithy young woman with a flawless complexion natural light blonde hair, and dark, dark blue eyes. In a few months' time, she had totally regressed. Though quiet most of the time, when she was enraged, only Mrs. Van der Hurst could handle her. One night, a terrifying scream rent the barracks, and we ran to where the Van der Hurst lived to find Lenitchi trying to choke her mother. It took her sisters and a number of us to force them apart. More than once, she made attempts on Mrs. Van der Herf's life, once trying to stab her with a knife. How often I saw the mother standing with the picture, grieving for her Linnitsche, and how often I heard her say, If it wasn't for God, I don't know what I would do. She loved the Lord and drew upon him for help and comfort. 
What a great wound this family had sustained. A hurt only God could heal. The next daughter, Tina, was a physically strong, very dear girl with red hair. She worked at the piggery. Mean, the third daughter, was very tall and very lovely with blonde hair. She worked with the garden crew. The youngest daughter, Katrina, was spoiled, naturally, but she was only 13. They were girls to be proud of, and they brought much comfort to their mother. This family was respected by all of us, and we sorrowed from, for them and Lenici. During a severe outbreak of dys dysentery, Lenici took ill and died in the camp hospital. The family could but say it was a blessing, since the doctors held out no hope of Lenici recovering from her mental illness. Next to the Van der Hurst came the section of the barracks where Mrs. Seeley, Mrs. Presswood, Miss Kemp, and I lived. Mrs. Jaffrey and Margaret lived in barracks 6, where Mrs. Jaffrey had many friends from Makassar. However, they later moved to one of the cement houses, which was better for Mrs. Jaffrey, as it was less damp and not as cold at night. Basically, this was the arrangement that existed at the end of the war. A very large go-down had been constructed in front of our block of barracks. Here were stored all the camp supplies. The rainy season came with a promise that we would be sloshing around in a sea of red mud until the dry season came again. The grass roof became waterlogged. The bamboo frame was not sufficiently braced to withstand the wind and driving rain. One afternoon we heard a crackling sound, followed by a mighty swoosh, then crash. A cry went up on all sides of everyone to get out and help salvage their food. The whole camp worked for hours trying to save as much as possible. Ruth and I were given a rigid bamboo stretcher on which to carry between us heavy copra bags full of saturated rice and sugar. I called on the Lord for strength, for I was sure my arms must come out of their sockets. My spine felt as though the vertebrae would be, be being, were being crushed uh, one into the other. When everything was stashed under cover everywhere, we limped back to the barracks. Our feet hurt from slipping and sliding around in the mud. Every muscle in our bodies screamed with fatigue. I made up my mind that if I were going to be a coolie, I'd have to brush up on the shifting the load technique. The well was down on the other side of the camp, beyond the cement houses. We had to carry a bucket and rope for drawing the water, and by the time we had walked back to our shed in mud or dust, we needed another bath. The well house was much too small to accommodate all those who had to use it. It was a day of rejoicing when we saw workmen arriving to begin sinking wells in the area between the barracks. At first the water was red from the clay, as the wells were not lined, but even this water was welcome for washing down the toilets. During the dry season, water became scarce, and we were careful of every drop. During the rainy season, we could wash a considerable amount of mud 
and dust from our work clothes and legs by just standing in the rain. A bathhouse was constructed around the well site, and a cement guard wall was put in, or, or in around the mouth of the well to keep the children from falling into it. With soap, as with food, clothes, everything, sometimes there was just enough. Other times the supply was far from adequate. If it were in short supply, we bathed with our clothes on to conserve the soap, for that precious item soaked through the dirty, sweat-filled garments and cleansed our skin as well. We had two sets of clothes issued to us, shorts and sleeveless blouses for those of us under 30. A dress could be requested by those over 30. These garments were navy blue, but after the first wash they were less than navy blue, and after being in the sun for not too many days, they became gray. Because there were no lamps in the bathhouses, we bathed by braille, then put on our dry outfits for sleeping, and were ready for work the following morning. About two weeks after we had arrived from Molino, Mr. Yamajai was assigned to Kampali as permanent camp commander. Our isolation was so intense that very little of the outside world slipped across the moat or under the barbed wire perimeter of our two-acre compound, but occasionally a rumor reached us. It was whispered that Mr. Yamajai had a maniacal temper and had just beaten to death an inmate of the men's camp at Pari Pari. We were dying for the for news of our hu own husbands, and those women who had sons also interned up, up the coast had double concern, but if the rumor were true, the new commander was certainly not the man to ask for the that cherished information. We could only guess how our husbands must have felt, how helpless, how thwarted, how unanguished, when they learned that this man was being transferred to Kampali as sole authority and arbiter over the lives of their wives and children. One morning, the camp was called to assemble before the Kampali headquarter office to meet Commander Yamajai, a short fat man with bow legs. He paced back and forth before those lines of women and children and a few remaining men. His face was round and moonlike, and his dark eyes watched from behind large, dark-rimmed glasses. His black hair was crew-cut, short and spiky. When he issued commands, his parted lips revealed tobacco-stained teeth. He was dressed in a lightweight khaki uniform, short pants with knee socks, and a signet or siglet uh, under his uh, lightweight shirt. We were to learn that when his temper was aroused, he was like a man who had gone berserk. He could be de deathly uh, ruthless. The second in command to Yamajai was an impudent young officer who bore the ill will of all. He strutted about and loved to remind us that we were his slaves. He often made an issue out of nothing. He was wholeheartedly abhorred. Beneath these two men, Mrs. Jostra 
continue to serve as the link in the chain of command between the women and children in the camp and their Japanese captors. She was 38, large and angular, with skin that seemed to be permanently sunburned. She was gifted with unusual organizational abilities. She wore glasses with light plastic frames, and her hair was braided and wound around her head. Her work attire was a pair of shorts, pedal pusher length, and a pair of heavy boots that amazingly lasted throughout the entire war years. She was a school teacher by profession, a fine woman who took her responsibilities seriously. As best she could, she juggled the insistent work quotas of the camp commander and the decreasing morale and physical condition of the women for whom she felt great responsibility. One or our days had been so busy since our arrival in Kampali that there had been little time to visit Dr. Ja visit with Dr. Jaffrey. I went over with Margaret every week to cut his hair and trim his beard and mustache, but I missed the visits and the Bible studies. One early evening in July, after I had finished my barbering, we had quite a lengthy chat. Dr. Jaffrey loved people and had been relating antidotes about those in his house on the other side of the camp. As Margaret and I rose from the bench to leave, he said, Lassie, I love Mother and Muggy, but I'm so lonely for Russell. Two days later, the big trucks rolled into camp, and all the men, with the exception of a carpenter and Dr. Marcelli, and the boys over sixteen were ordered to collect their baggage and board the trucks for deportation to Pari Pari. Dr. Jaffrey was to get his wish. He would be with Russell. From our barracks, Wang Min Fu, Jan de Kizer, and Robbie Paul were to be taken. We hurried to say goodbye to Dr. Jaffrey. He looked so regal with his white hair and close-cut beard and mustache. I felt like crying. Must he also be taken away? That day we said farewell to a prophet, a great man of God, and a dear friend, and we all knew it. After they had loaded the men into the truck, Dr. Jaffrey leaned toward me and said, Lassie, whatever you do, be a good soldier for Jesus Christ. The echo of those words was to sustain me for, through the rest the, through the awful days ahead. Next time, chapter 6, part 1.